Welcome back, dear listeners. This is Shara Creative and Technical Director here at Evidence for Faith. I hope you enjoyed our first session in our creation seminar series. Uh, we are now on session two, and this one is titled God is the Creator. I'm not going to spoil it for you, and I'm not going to keep you here very long, but just as a reminder, if you want to see the visuals that go along with this lesson, you can actually watch the recordings, and, and that will show you the PowerPoint and all the demonstrations that Michael does live. As always, this program is supported by generous donors like you. If you would like to become a donor and help support this broadcast and keep it free, you can donate at evidenceforfaith.org slash give. That's evidence, the number four, faith.org slash give. And with that, here is Michael in God is the Creator. Bill came up to me just a few moments ago and told me that um, how the Genesis 1-1 starts where it just says God, in the beginning, God. And he's absolutely correct because God is the one who did it all. If you take God out of the equation, all you've got is what's in the box. And in the box cannot explain everything. There's the problem. Try and explain a miracle. I had a person one time said, I don't believe in miracles. I said, okay. I said, um, just recently, this was a number of years ago. Maybe some of you might recall this. There was a skyscraper in Chicago. There was a window washer on a platform, and he was about 25 stories up. The cables broke. He fell 25 stories down to the Chicago sidewalk. 25 stories he lived. Doctors on television, they're talking about this, and they're saying, um, news reporters are asking, how did the guy live? The doctor said, it's a miracle, can't explain it. I remember back in the 80s, latter 80s or early 90s, in Illinois, a guy, uh, a bunch of people, a bunch of friends went out, adults, went out on a plane on a Saturday to go skydiving. They were flying someplace in Illinois. Uh, they jumped out of the plane, which takes some type of mentality right there, um, pulled the rip cords and stuff, and everybody's chute opened, and they started floating down except for one person. His didn't. And he fell over 1,000 feet and landed on pavement. He didn't die. Broke every bone in his body, but he didn't die. It was on the news that night. How do you explain this? Doctors, medical field, and stuff like this are all saying, it's a miracle, we can't explain it. So I was telling him this kind of stuff, and I named some other things like that, and he goes, well, I guess miracles can happen. I said, yeah, miracles do happen. Um, the Bible's full of them. And I take, uh, one of the things that I do, is I told you I've written a couple of books on biblical archaeology, and I take tours to Israel, archaeological tours showing the um, archaeological remains and stuff, showing evidence that the Bible, the stories that you see in here, the characters that you see are real. And this thing talks about a lot of miracles. One of my favorite places to go is Jericho. Because you can see, if you walk around on the south side of Jericho, where the walls totally fell. You know something? Tour guides generally don't do this, but I run all over the place when I'm there. I go on the north side. If you remember in the story, there's a girl named Rahab. Rahab. She lived in the wall. The wall didn't fall. If you go to the north side of the, um, of the city, Dr. Garstang, British archaeologist in the 1930s, uncovered a whole section of wall that did not fall. All the other walls fell outward. That section didn't. Miracle? 
Hmm. So, and I could go into a whole thing about the crossing of the Red Sea and the Gulf of Aqaba and show you pictures of chariots fossilized in, co uh, in coral all over the place. Hundreds of chariots. It's there. Um, there's many, a uh, number of archaeologists have gone down there, dove around, photographed them and stuff. Miracles. Of course, I did have a person tell me, I don't believe that was the crossing of the Red Sea and a miracle God separating the waters and it came back and killed the Egyptians. But I said, well, how do you explain a straight line of chariots, um, in some cases 800, 900 feet down, how do you explain it? He says, I think that some ship was carrying them across and just, there was a storm and they kept rolling off the deck. Yeah, I said, wow, that's an imagination. <laughs> yeah. Why not spaceships coming and dropping them? Okay, let's get into this. God is the creator. You might be familiar with this name, Francis Crick. He's now dead. I'm sure he's a creationist today. Um, he was a person who tried his best to disprove God. He was one of the most vocal scientific atheists there ever was. And he was one of the Nobel winners for the design of the DNA molecule. He, with James Watson and Maurice Wilkins, uh, discovered... Um, <clears throat> discovered. They sort of, if you read James Watson's book, he, he is honest about it. They stole information from a gal named Rosalind Franklin who was photographing pictures of this. She hadn't quite understood exactly what the diagram was in her photographs. Watson got into her lab, but sort of borrowed, without permission, her, uh, her work and saw the picture looking at it like this. And he goes, oh my gosh, it's a double helix. And he goes back and he writes a paper. And since Rosalind Franklin worked in Maurice Wilkins' lab, they included Maurice Wilkins because they needed her pictures to do it. And she worked for Maurice Wilkins, so they put it all together. And so James Watson, Francis Crick, and uh, Maurice Wilkins win the Nobel Prize for this. Rosalind Franklin doesn't even get mentioned. Years later, um, there was a symposium with Dr. Watson as to why he did not give credit to Rosalind Franklin, um, she was Jewish, and he said, well, for one, she wasn't very nice to me. If she'd wore more makeup and maybe had her skirt a little higher, I probably would have included her. That's why James Watson is often called the bad boy of science. That's what he honestly said. I heard him say it. <laughs> well, Francis Crick, devout atheist, does not believe in God believes in random chance and et cetera, et cetera. But as I told you, in the 1990s, something started happening in the scientific field in mathematics and physics. They started to find out there is no such thing as random. In his last, I think this was the last book he wrote. Um, it's called Life Itself, Its Origin and Nature. Just before he died, Francis Crick wrote this stunning statement. An honest man, armed with all the knowledge available to us now, could only state that in some sense, the origin of life appears at the moment to be almost a miracle. So many are the conditions which would have had to have been satisfied to get it going. It was one of the last books he wrote. He never became a believer, as far as I know. Um, stayed an atheist, but he said there's no way to explain outside of a miracle. This is right after the whole thing with random chance was being discovered. I can't help, he never mentions that, but I can't help but think that that had some influence upon him that he said this is a miracle. Um, he also said in, in his book that we have to constantly remember um, that when we look at a microscope, everything appears to be designed. We've got to keep telling ourselves it's not. 
Yeah. <laughs> what a group, huh? So how did life and matter form on this unique planet? Well, as Bill said in our little break here, God, there's your answer. It's that simple. Um, the master designer, which I've shown you, there is a master designer. These things that I've shown you here, it's not random. And I'm going to show you more about this right now. Let's just go and look at the Bible verses quickly here. Genesis 1.1. Mostly probably quote this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. By the way, do you know something? You have all three parts here of um, Einstein's theory of relativity. They're all here. Um, created. That's, you know, there's heavens and earth, there's the matter. Um, in the beginning, there's your time factor. Uh, created is actually the, um, he's creating light and everything. It's all in here. And that's it right there. It tells us God is the one who did it. That's just the, only, see, the, re the reason I want to point this out, what I'm trying to get to you here, people have a problem with Genesis 1, right? Isn't that what you always hear? Genesis 1. I have a problem with Genesis 1 because Genesis 1, uh, the whole chapter of Genesis chapter 1, it just doesn't make sense. It goes against what all the assumptions are that science tells us. But the problem is they just don't focus, or they seemingly, singularly focus just on Genesis chapter 1. Do you know that this is all through the Bible? God creating? It's just not in Genesis 1. And I have many times tried to point this out and have successfully done this when people say, well, I just have a problem with Genesis, like my opening story. I said, well, what do you do with Exodus? What about Exodus? Do you know there's a creation account in Exodus 2? In six days, Exodus 20, verse 11, in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, the sea and all that's in them. Now, what we're getting into here is talking about the weeks. You get down to verse, uh, or chapter 31, verse 17. In six days, the Lord made the heaven and the earth. He's talking about in the origin of the, of the week. Do you notice that every single culture all through history has always had a seven-day week? Where did that come from? How did that happen? Doesn't there seem to be some type of a link here? God is telling us, here's how a week started. Now, <laughs> this would be an interesting week if each one of these days is millions of years old. That'd be a honking long week. I mean, wow. But no one ever talks about the problems in the creation account in Exodus. They don't mention that one. Or how about Job? As a biologist, this is one of my favorite passages in the Bible. But ask the beasts, and they will teach you. The birds of the heaven, and they will tell you. Or the bushes of the earth, and they will teach you. And the fish in the sea will declare to you, who among all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? This is the oldest book in written literature. Job came out before Genesis. Uh, it took place before Genesis. This is the oldest book, and it's telling us again, God is the creator. It doesn't say that, uh, ask these things, and they'll tell you how they evolve from one form to another. No, God is specifically mentioning different kinds of things specifically. Let's go to another one. How about Psalm? No one ever argues about Psalm. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, for he spoke and it came to be. It doesn't say that the heavens evolved, or for a Hebrew word for like that. It's not there. It's specifically mentioning God doing this. Psalm 104, verses 24 and 25. O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. Who did it? God. The earth is full of your creatures. Here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things both small and great. It's not about how it's evolving from one form to another, that it just started off as slime and eventually became bacteria and then, you know, algaes, et cetera, et cetera, until we finally get females, human species. It doesn't do that. God made different kinds. He created things. He didn't wait for them to evolve. The whole week thing shows that. 
because a day is a day for a week, and he set up that by week. Isaiah, no one argues about this one. 37, 16, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone. Of all the kingdoms on the earth, here we are, you have made heaven and earth. It didn't happen by a bang. It happened by God doing it. How he did it? You can't explain it. Science will never explain it. It's beyond the realm of science to do this. Isaiah 42, 5, thus says the Lord, who created the heavens? Here again, we have God creating. Isaiah 45, 12, I have made earth and created man on it. Notice that. I created man. I didn't wait for man to start off in some ooze and then form into um, some type of a sponge and then finally into some type of a worm, different types of worms, till they finally formed into an insect form, till they finally formed into um, uh, vertebrates and first from the, like, uh, uh, fish and then from fish to amphibians to reptiles then to uh, mammals. That's not what this is saying. God made man. He created humans. It doesn't say that I, uh, I made the earth and I started a process whereas humans would eventually form. That's not what's being said here. Isaiah 45, 18, for thus says the Lord who created the heavens. He is God who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. Whoa, stop here. He did not create it empty. Do you know what that tells us? God created an aged earth. You see that? It didn't start off empty. He put everything in there in a very short period of time, not billions of years. Could you imagine Adam and Eve being, you know, just forming and waking up here, and God says, yeah, it's a little barren here. There's no plants, nothing to eat. I did plant a whole pile of radishes over there for you, and in about 30 days you'll have something to eat. No, he doesn't do that. Did you notice that in the Genesis account there's already fruit on trees? Did you notice that there's rivers, another sign of a young earth? God created an aged young earth earth is what he did. No one argues with Isaiah on this. We don't see this anywhere in there. And he formed to be inhabited. Mark, let's go to the New Testament. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Boy, we could really go off on a tangent on this one, hey? The whole point is, do you know that I could take this microscope right here? I have a box of stains over here. I could take any one of a cell sample. You, you could go into a back room, take a cell sample out of your cheek, just swab a cheek, bring it to me. I can put it on this microscope in a matter of about three minutes once I start. In about three minutes, I could tell if that came from a male or a female. I can prove it scientifically because I got a special stain that I can see the chromosomes on. And there's a thing that's called the female chromosomes. You have two X, and they sit sorted together, and they make a special little size, a little tiny object inside of the nucleus of the cell that we basically call a bar body, B-A-R-R, named after the guy who discovered it. It's the X chromosomes. If you have this, you're female. I used to have this game in my microbiology class when I used to teach micro that we did this. It was one of the things in biotechnology I did too, in trying to set up crime scenes. We put skin cells around. They had to tell me, is it male or female? Because God created a male and female, but we won't go further onto that one. Mark 13, 19, in the beginning of creation, God created until now. Again, we're seeing God is the creator. John 1, 1 through 3, fabulous passage. Oh my gosh, I love this passage. In the beginning was the word. John has a cipher here. You like puzzles and stuff? 
in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, that's the Word, and without him was not anything made that was made. Who's the him? You keep reading down, you get to verse 14. And the Word became flesh. Yes, flesh and tabernacled or dwelt with us. Who's the creator? Who's the word? Jesus. Isn't that cool? Jesus is creator God. And it's just not in John. Look at the Colossians 1.16, a description talking specifically, Paul writing on who Jesus is, says this, for by him, this is Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Oh my gosh, do I love this verse. It says invisible things. There's invisible things. There's atoms and stuff. There's little cells. There's bacteria that people back at that time didn't know anything about. 2,000 years ago, they didn't know about this. Today, we got microscopes. We can see this. I'm just fascinated how scientifically accurate the Bible is. I have a whole series on our website that we've started, not all completed yet, on science in the Bible, that there's no science errors in the Bible, no provable science error in the Bible. There's none. And I'm doing a series on that. Wow, that's cool. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2. One of the best passages you will ever come across. You want to do a study on who Jesus is? Do the first four verses of the book of Hebrews. Chapter 1, 1 through 4. Because it says here, talking about who Jesus is, he has spoke to us by his son. This is God. God spoke to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. Get this last part. Through whom he also created the world. Who created? Jesus is creator God. You saw it in John, you saw it in Colossians, you see it in Hebrews, three times specifically mentioning Jesus is creator God. Isn't that cool? But is there any evidence? I mean, people would say, well, you're just building on faith. Is there evidence to support this? Well, there must be, or why would I put that slide in there, right? So let's take a look at what we got. I want to just take a couple of things here and show you. First of all, we talked about random chance. Now, Random chance cannot do things. It doesn't work. To make an enzyme, which is what um, is a type of protein, thus we're using amino acids. To make an enzyme, um, the probability of making an enzyme, now first of all, I should explain to you what an enzyme does. I wanted to do an experiment with you tonight, but I couldn't find raw liver in town. Um, <laughs> my wife and I drove around trying to find raw liver, and we just couldn't find any, but um, at the grocery store. Because I wanted to take a, a jar of uh, a beaker here and pour in hydrogen peroxide like you have at home. Hydrogen peroxide's H2O2. It's just water with an extra mo uh, oxygen molecule attached, and it's a very weak bond there, so it's easy to break. Light will break it. If you ever notice, hydrogen peroxide comes in brown bottles, dark, opaque bottles, because if you set it out, sunlight goes through a clear bottle, it breaks it down into water and oxygen, slowly just making it, it's ruining. So if you want to see it react happen really quick, pour hydrogen peroxide in a beaker or in a jar. You can do this at home. It's really easy if you can find liver. Um, pour that in there. Just cut off a little piece of liver about the size of a quarter, drop it into it. Get ready for a mess because it will instantly foam like crazy. It releases the oxygen uh, from the peroxide, the extra oxygen. So oxygen gas is given off. It'll foam because there's impurities in water and stuff. It foams up, but you got pure oxygen coming up. What's left over is gunky water with liver in it. But it makes oxygen. What did it? Why does liver do that? It has an enzyme called catalase. 
Catalase is an enzyme. It's a type of protein. It's made of amino acids. Now, you have to use, you are all so busy right now. Do you know how tired you should be? Do you know that you're made up of approximately 10 trillion cells? And each one of your cells is doing about, oh, anywhere between 100 to 1,000 chemical reactions um, every second. No wonder you're tired. That's a lot of work. But what's doing it? Enzymes. They speed up reactions. If I took a hamburger and set it out on a table at a park or something and just let it sit there, keep the flies away, it will eventually break down. Bacteria will get on it and start to break it down to its molecular components. Well, the thing is, we're living creatures. We have a high metabolism. We need energy quickly. So God has designed us with all sorts of enzymes to break down food, organic properties, very quickly. That's why you eat something, put it in your mouth, and 24 hours later it comes out in a different form and in a different place. Because what's happened, enzymes have reacted on it and broke it down very quickly. That's what enzymes do. All living things need enzymes. Now, the chance of getting a random chance, random chance forming an enzyme, what's the odds of that? Well, as I said, they speed up reactions. And I was uh, another thing you can do is, is um, enzymes and proteins, they, their shape is very important. And so this is like one type of enzyme. Now, if I do this, it's still the same enzyme, but now it's not activated, it can't be used because it's the wrong shape. If you can change the shape of an enzyme, we call that denaturing or cooking, um, it ruins the, the enzyme from being able to do its job. That's why when you take egg white, egg white is pure protein, albumin. Put it in a hot skillet, it turns from trans, uh, pretty much transparent to solid opaque white. It's still all the same amino acids, but you change the shape, the heat changes the shape of the thing. Enzymes are very particular very particular. And they have to work at certain pH, they got to work at certain temperatures, et cetera, or their shape changes. Now, you are using millions of enzymes right now as I'm talking. And they speed up reactions. They work like a key in a lock. Uh, enzyme for breaking down starch in your mouth, amylase, um, will, will do that in your mouth, but if you, um, you have another enzyme that breaks down table sugar from your small intestine called sucrase, breaks down sucrose sugar. You have galactase, which breaks down galactose sugars. Um, you have all these different types of, of enzymes that your God has prevent, uh, provided us for to break stuff down. These enzymes are very important for life. Now, as I told you, there's 20 amino acids that we call essential. All living things are made out of those 20. So like this thing here, if this is a real enzyme, it's made out of those 20. Repeating units of it in a certain order, you change two of them around, you no longer have the same functioning enzyme. It's totally different now. So, and this is all coded off of our DNA. Now, these enzymes are very important and critical for you to be able to live, for a cell to live. Mathematicians have studied random chance, trying to figure out what's the odds of random chance making one very, very simple enzyme. Random chance. What's the probability? And it comes out to be about somewhere, it's debatable, different mathematicians get, get a, a little bit odd numbers at times, depends on their math on this, but the lowest number I've ever seen is like 10, 1 to 10 to the 125th power. You remember that, what that means, scientific notation? That's a 1 with 125 zeros behind it. That's a honking big number. Try flipping a coin that many times. Gee. So that's for making just one enzyme. 
You get this? One enzyme, just one specific enzyme. Single bacteria, something like an E. coli cell, very simple. We call them simple cells. They're not simple. Ma, gosh, they are so complex. But they, the simplest bacterial cell we know of needs a minimum of 2,000 different enzymes just to barely function in life. Not one. What's the odds of that? If making one is 10 to the 25th power, what is making 2,000? I can't even begin to fathom that number. Let's just do a little math here. In, in the book, Evolution from Space, Dr. Fred Hoyle and Dr. I'm going to butcher this, Chandra Wick, Wickramashinge, <laughs> whatever her name is, uh, stated that the odds of two enzymes being formed by random chance in a single bacterial cell is 1 to 10 to the 40,000th. Their numbers came up a little higher. I was showing you the other one. But even so, this is, these are scientists who came up with this. That's the odds of just getting two enzymes. Two. And we need at least 2,000 just to get a simple cell to be able to work. But as I told you before, science in the 19, uh, 1990s discovered that there is no random. That, and actually, when I worked in fisheries genetics, we would use information like this to see if our calculations are probable for evolution to occur. This is one thing sort of hung me up. If anything is beyond, now get this, this is really important. If anything gets beyond the odds of 1 to 10 to the 50th power, it is scientifically impossible. Now, I don't know what you call a number that's got a 1 in front of it and 50 zeros behind it, but that's a honking big number. Do you know what that means? I could take a coin and flip it 100 times, and 100 times it can come up heads. You'd think it's rigged, but <laughs> it can scientifically. If we get a perfect coin to do that? Do you know that you can flip a coin, according to probability, one million times, and it still come up heads every single time? It is scientifically possible. Because that's not 10 to the 50. That's only like 10 to the 6th. Now, get to 10 to 50. Uh, even 10 to the 49th. I mean, that's crazy that it would still come up heads that many times. Scientifically, it is still considered possible. Where do we draw the line in science? 10 to the 50th. That's the point. Mathematicians, physicists say you can't go beyond that. Anything that's beyond 10 to the 50th is impossible. What have I just showed you about these enzymes forming by random chance? It's higher than 10 to the 50th power. This is, I think, why Dr. Crick wrote that life seems to be a miracle. I don't know he doesn't reference it. It's just funny that he writes this right about the same time as this discovery is coming out. It is a miracle for this to happen. And this leads us to DNA. The DNA molecule, cute little thing that we told you about, this cool little thing, which is a digital language. DNA in a human is equivalent to 1.5 gigabytes of information. That's on your, take one cell out of your body, let me extract the DNA, I used to teach people how to do this, extract the DNA out of that, we take it all out, and all the codes that we will read, it, you need two CDs to store all that. That's how much information. That's amazing. How much information can be stored on DNA? Dr. Roth, former professor of cell and molecular biology, University of Connecticut, and an expert in DNA, wrote in The Piling of Coincidence on the Origin of DNA that, quote, it appears it is reasonable at present to suggest that possibility of a creator, unquote. This is not a Christian. But because of what the probability is of all this, he has said we have to think there has to be the possibility of a creator. There's got to be something else besides the box. The box can't explain it all.
Bill Gates of all people. <laughs> he knows computers. Human DNA, he said, is like a computer program, but far more advanced than any we've ever created. It's a binary language. It's a binary language. What language happens by random chance? Languages don't happen by random chance. Do you remember sitting back, some of you this might take a long time to think back this far, uh, if you're like me, having classmates in a classroom where you're not allowed to pass notes? But you would be sitting on one side, usually it's elementary school, but I had this with middle school too. Uh, some of the people over there are laughing and smiling right now. Um, having a little, you want to send a note to someone across the other side of the room? The thing is, if you write the note, you have to hand it because you can't get out of your chair because the teacher's teaching. You secretly pass it to the person, they get it. it. Well, they'll read the note. You don't want that. So you develop a special code that only you and the other person has. Remember doing this? No! Were you homeschooled by yourself? <laughs> I used to get this all the time when I taught middle school. People were passing notes. I didn't realize at the time as their teacher that what they were doing were proving the point that there's intelligence behind language. Because the one person has the code um, and writes the thing, sends the code across the room. People are looking at it. This makes no sense. Pass it on. This makes no sense. Pass it on. This makes no sense. Pass it on. Finally gets to the person who's got the cipher for the code, sits down. Oh, I like you too. But that took intelligence. Languages take intelligence. Name a language anywhere on the planet throughout history that was formed without a, lang uh, without a mind behind it. A language ca is caused by intelligence. Even Bill Gates gets this. Dr. Stephen Meyer, Discovery Institute, said, when we find information in DNA molecules encoded in digital form, the most logical conclusion is that that source of information had an intelligent source. There's an intelligence behind putting a language together. Since DNA is a digital language, and a language is always produced by intelligence, doesn't it seem logical to say that there has to be a superior intelligence out there? To me, this is the most compelling piece showing that the, uh, the whole Darwinian evolution thing is so screwed up. How do you make a digital language as complex that would require our information to be stored on two CDs, all on this little tiny molecule, that if I was to stretch it out inside of, from a human body, stretches about this far? Wow. This is amazing. And that's not even talking about all the things that it does. Or like replicating, that this code can actually make enzymes to actually reproduce in Xerox copy numerous copies of it. Millions of copies of it, over and over and over, and put it into new cells as it's reproducing. Not only that, it can, it can open up and have sections read to make new enzymes and new proteins. And it, it translates it, and, and it uh, goes through a protein synthesis, making more proteins and things. Everything is coded on here. What's the chance of all this happening? It's impossible. It can't be done. Do you guys ever hear the SETI project? Back in the 1960s, Latter 50s, early 60s, NASA came up with the idea that we might not be alone in the universe. So they set up these radio telescopes all over the, all over the world. And they're still around. They gave up on this, NASA did, uh, about 30 years into it. They pumped billions of dollars into this, and they got nothing. What it is, is they're sitting basically turning on microphones, if you will, radio telescopes, and they're pointing them all different uh, directions in the universe, and they're waiting to hear a digital language. 
if they can hear a language coming over, we know that there's life someplace else. NASA started off really serious about this. After like three decades, this is ridiculous. We're not hearing anything. It's like, remember the first Larry Boy movie? With the gourd sitting in the thing? They, got, they gave up their job at like a slushy store or something like that, and they're sitting here waiting for space aliens to come, and nothing happens, and one of them's sitting here complaining, nothing, nothing. You know, we've been sitting here all this time, nothing. Maybe we can get our job back at Mr. Slushy or something. That's sort of making fun of the SETI project because they weren't hearing anything. So private sector now has bought the SETI project. They still run it. Matter of fact, if you follow the news, this week they have detected a radio wave from the center of our galaxy. But they can't figure out, they can't read it. It's not a language, it's just impulse. And they can't explain what it is, but it's definitely not a life form. They believe it's caused by electromagnetic waves. Electromagnetic waves can also make radio signals. And there's a lot of electricity and there's a lot of uh, uh, things going on in the center of, the, of our galaxy, but there's no life there. As a matter of fact, when you look at a spiral galaxy, we sit way over on one band. If we get any closer to the center, the, um, the gra gamma radiation is so strong it would kill everything. If we're too far outside the band, we don't have all the periodic table of elements on our planet, thus we can't have life. We're in the perfect place. This is called the anthropic principle. Everything is set up perfectly for life to exist on this one planet. Amazing, can't be described. But no, they haven't ever found anything with a study project. But you know what they're doing? They're trying to find a language. Folks, they're looking in the wrong direction. You want to find out if there's intelligence in the universe? It's really simple. There's the evidence. Where else do you get a digital language? You understand what I'm saying? If they could find a, a digital language in outer space, we know there's life. Every single one of you, every single thing living on the planet and has ever lived has a digital language in it. And they can't recognize that that's come from an intelligent designer. Now, getting back to the odds of making these things. The odds of making just one small enzyme by random chance, one to, uh, to 10 to the 125th power. What are the chances of making all the enzymes that are needed to run one cell? What do I mean by that? Let me show you the periodic, or the uh, biochemical pathways chart. Maybe you've seen this. Some of you, this might bring nightmares back to you. This should be expanded, this is an old one. These are the chemical reactions occurring inside of a cell every minute. Now, the thing is, this is set up like dominoes. Once one forms, it makes a product. Once that product is made, another enzyme can come along and start its job. It can't work until the product is made. Once that product is now made, it's, ma it's like setting up another domino. Now, once that domino is present, that activates other enzymes that they can come over and change that molecule into a different one. And another enzyme then will change that one into another one. Blood clotting is like that. We know there's 27 different factors, at least, that have to occur for your blood to clot. At least 27, there's probably a lot more than that. If you have one thing wrong with one of those, say factor number eight, you have a disease called hemophilia, which will kill you. It's, it's a fatal disease in many cases, not always today. But it's a very serious disease. You can't clot your blood. If you have one enzyme out of line here, you've got problems. And they all have to be available at the right time to do their job. Specifically, they've got to be perfect. If there's anything wrong with it, the pH is wrong, um, the, uh, the shape of it in any way is distorted, it's not going to work. It's got to be absolutely perfect. On this chart alone, there's over 1,000 enzymes. 
And there's many more. There's tens of thousands more that can't, won't fit on this chart. And this is what's going on inside your cell or minute. I used to have this hanging in my classroom, and above it I wrote, there is a God. Students would come up, public school students would come up and say, what does this mean, that there is a God? What's this? And when I explain this to them, they're like, holy cow, there has to be a God, an intelligence to put this together. Isn't that amazing? This was one of the things, too, that started getting to me to change me from being a, theist, uh, a theistic evolutionist to a creationist. How in the world could this possibly happen by random chance? To get all of those enzymes lined up perfectly, to set up this whole floor with dominoes, 10,000 dominoes, to get them to fall just perfectly. If we miss one dynamo out of the place, the whole thing doesn't work, right? You gotta get them all lined up perfectly. They're all stored, the information to make it, on here. Then they have to be made perfectly. If they don't, the cell dies. So what's the odds? Listen, logic shouts the existence of God. Spock would even agree with this. Live long and prosper. Logic shouts the existence of God. What do I mean by that? How about this? You've all heard of the expression, well, you have to be a rocket scientist to figure that one out. You ever heard that expression? That's a reference to one of the most intelligent people, scientists who've ever lived. His name was Werner von Braun. He was working for the Germans during World War II. Um, the Americans um, allowed him to come over. Actually, we sort of captured him and brought him over from the Russians, so they didn't get him. He's the guy who worked at NASA and developed the rocket program. He was building the B-2 rocket to bomb Britain. Um, he was the foremost scientist on rocketry. NASA wanted to send rockets and space satellites and spacemen up in space. They needed a rocket expert. He's the rocket expert. If you're a rocket scientist, this is him. He was um, a Lutheran. He believed in God. Very strongly, he believed in God. Um, and he's the guy who designed the Saturn V rocket that took the Apollo astronauts to the moon. He believed in God. Matter of fact, he wrote this in a letter to the California School Board. It says, quote, For me, the idea of creation is not conceivable without invoking the necessity of design. One cannot be exposed to the law and the order of the universe without concluding that there must be design and purpose. He's talking about that there is a creator God. He actually wrote in another letter, or another pamphlet in one of his papers once, he said this, It boggles my mind that anyone can walk out into the night sky, look up, see the stars, and fail to see the existence of God. This is the rocket scientist. Oh, gee. Yeah. What does Romans say? What does Paul tell us in Romans? For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. In the things that have been made, things that have been made, they shout the existence of God. I love that passage. God has expressed himself so well. Just before I wrap up here, let me show you a couple of things. I'm going to give you a couple of quotes that we've done. No, I'm going a little, little long. We started a little late, so just pardon me. Some years ago, I was having a discussion with a scientist friend of mine. And he said to me, Michael, I, I can't believe that you believe in God. You're a published scientist. I don't understand how you can believe in the concept of God. I said to him, why do you say that? He says, I've never seen any evidence of God. 
Okay. We were sitting at a table just drinking cans of Coke. It was evening. Actually, I was down in the Florida Keys on a tropical marine biology trip that I do every year. His name is Chris, and we were sitting here having this discussion. And I said, Chris, um, you ever go to the art museum? Oh, boy, he's changing subject. He doesn't want to talk about this. It's his impression. And he goes, oh, yeah. I said, um, I love going to art museums. You like going to art? Oh, I love, yeah, yeah, I like going to art. You got a favorite artist? Yeah, yeah. Who's your favorite artist? Rembrandt. Oh, Rembrandt, yeah. Okay. Now, we had just been talking about the existence of God. Chris told me he couldn't believe in God because he never saw any evidence that there was a God. He said, I've never talked to anybody who talked to God, never heard God's voice, never seen any evidence that there's a God. Now, Chris has no idea what I'm doing to him here. And I said to him, so Rembrandt is your favorite artist. He goes, yeah. I said, have you ever seen the white or the Night Watch by Rembrandt? Michael, it's my favorite painting. I said, oh, isn't that fantastic? How Rembrandt uses the shades of darkness, the angles and everything. And he says, you know that painting well. I said, I love it too. It's a great painting. He goes, oh, who's your favorite painter? And I said, well, I'm in the French Impressionist. I'm a Pierre Augusta Renoir. He goes, oh, yeah, those are sort of cool too. I said, oh, he has one uh, called the the, um, Ebbing of the Tide. I just love the painting there with the colors and stuff. And he has no idea where I'm going. And I said, so you really like Rembrandt? He goes, yeah. I said, have you um, ever met Rembrandt? Michael, the guy's been dead for hundreds of years. You have to know that. Oh, that's, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm tired. It's late. Uh, it was late. This is around midnight. And I, yeah, I'm sorry. I, I, I messed up. But then we got talking about paintings again and stuff. And again, I went back to him and I said, hold on a second. Did you ever talk to anybody who talked to Rembrandt? Boy, you need to get sleep. Rembrandt's been dead for hundreds of years. Why are you asking me? I said, I'm sorry. And Man, I got to get some more rest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So then we start talking about some, some things we're going to be doing the next day on the trip and stuff. And um, I go back to it again. And I said, um, have you ever seen um, anything that Rembrandt actually painted himself, like what he did? He's been dead for hundreds of years. What's the matter with you? I said, well, Chris, you told me you can't believe in God because you can't see God. You never heard God. You never talked to anybody who saw God. You never saw anything that God made. Have you looked at a Rembrandt painting up close? You could see the brush strokes. Do you doubt that Rembrandt lived? No. How do you know Rembrandt lived? You can see his paintings. I pointed to the coconut tree right by us. I said, you're, you're a scientist. You've seen the structure on these leaves and stuff. Looked at the root system. Looked at the stem. Don't you see design in that? This is the brush strokes of God. He goes, wow, I never caught that before. Logic dictates that there's a God, and he can be seen by his creation. He's a master artist. Look at some of the sunsets lately. Let me just finish with this. Dr. Robin Collins is a physicist, very brilliant physicist professor of philosophy, Messiah University. He wrote this. Now, remember, he's in physics. He wrote this. Romans 1.20, the verse I just showed you, tells us that God's eternal power and divine nature can be seen and understood through the things that are made. He's quoting the verse. And that it is re- that it is the reason humanity is without excuse. That is right out of He just paraphrased that verse. Now, look what he says. I see physics as uncovering the evidence of God's fingerprint at a deeper, more subtle level than the ancients could have ever dreamed of. He has used physics to enable me to see 
evidence of his presence and creative ability. The heavens really do declare the glory of God, even more so for someone trained with physics and with the eyes to see it, unquote. I relate to this. I'm a biologist. Here's my tool. I am amazed when I look inside of slides. I see design. I'm taught microbiology for many years. I've worked in and taken classes in electron microscopy. I look at pictures of cells and parts of cells. I tell you, I see designs in these things. It's Romans 120. Nature shouts the existence of God. Logically, random chance cannot do it. It's illogical to believe that way. The only logical conclusion, there has to be a designer, and he has painted a picture all around us. I'm going to close in prayer with our presentation on this one, but I'll stick around here if you want to ask questions or whatever. Yes. Yes. That is fine with me. Do I look like I need it? Camels can live off their fat for eight weeks. I'm, I've got at least 10 here. <laughs> no, I just, I have one big massive muscle that I just keep here, yeah. But let me close here then. Father God, we thank you for this time and I just thank you for each person that's here and I pray that your spirit will just talk amongst us and, and teach us throughout the night, to bring up things throughout the evening and the next few days of what we have learned here tonight that shows that you truly are the creator God. It is logical. It's unlogical to believe otherwise. All of this is proven by just random chance, the odds of it, that this could not have happened by random chance. There has to be a designer. You are the designer. Everything in your word is true. So please strengthen our faith and help us to have ammunition that we can defend it also. And I ask that you keep everybody safe and bring us back a great crowd tomorrow. And just bless us all, please, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed that episode. A big thank you is due to our donors for making this ministry possible. Once again, you can become a donor at evidenceforfaith.org give. That's evidence, the number four, faith.org give. And help us keep this broadcast free. You can also support us by sharing, subscribing, and leaving a review on this podcast. If you would like to hear Michael live, you can also check out our bookings calendar at evidenceforfaith.org or book your own event with Michael. So this is Charlotte signing off. I'll see you on the next episode.